Hallelujah, Christ is risen. All right. In 1951, the sociologist Talcott Parsons wrote an influential book about what he called the sick roll. The sick roll referred to a series of cultural expectations and norms about how we treat illness. In seven decades after it was printed, we still used most of the rights and obligations he talked about. One of them is that no one chooses to be sick, so you don't blame people for being ill. Another is that when you're sick, you don't have to fulfill your normal work and family obligations, so don't get mad if someone doesn't come to your birthday party because they're in the hospital. But one of his norms is very different than it was over half a century ago, and that was that people who are sick always have to want to get better. Thankfully, we've moved away from that idea At some point, it's common for people who are sick to say, I don't want to get better, I just want to be comfortable. We don't view ending medical treatment as a kind of personal failure. But there's a certain irony here, too, that as we've become more comfortable talking about death, we become very uncomfortable talking about grief. We don't view not wanting to get better as a moral failing, But our culture often thinks of grieving as a personal failing. We have something closer to the grieving role. Sick people don't have to want to get better, but grieving people always have to act like they're fine. I mentioned before that one thing that makes me nervous during premarital counseling is when couples say that they never have disagreements. Because it usually just means they don't know when they're having disagreements. Like you don't argue about what to watch on Netflix. The equivalent thing that makes me nervous for funeral planning is when you sit down with a family and start walking through the ELW funeral liturgy, and someone sees the word funeral at the top of the page and says, oh no, we can't call it a funeral. We have to call it a celebration of life. So I tell them, of course, you can call it whatever you want, but it always makes me a little bit sad. Because as we do the planning, it often becomes clear that this person doesn't actually feel like celebrating at all, but they don't want to look ungrateful to the people around them. And maybe if we put a different word on the bulletin, it will make me feel better. See, grief is hard to talk about because it requires having two different emotions at the same time. There are more options in grief besides I'm happy and I'm sad. It doesn't help that the day of the church year that best captures the experience of grief, Holy Saturday, is an afterthought in our liturgical calendar. Jesus may have been dead for three days, but we've gotten those three days down to about 24 hours or so. No sooner do we roll the stone over Jesus' tomb than we say, well, it's almost Easter, better start rolling the stone away. But the truth is, there's no way to get from Good Friday to Easter Sunday without going through Holy Saturday. So it's important to take that empty, disorienting, cavernous space seriously. Holy Saturday might just be a day in our liturgical year, but it can take up months and years of our lives. The primary experience that we use to understand Holy Saturday in the church is silence. Silence, it's important to remember, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can help us pray, it can help us listen, One of the things that we as worship leaders have to remind ourselves of is that silence is a good thing. If liturgy is a conversation between us and God, at some point you just have to stop talking. 
That kind of silence can be a way of giving over some power to God and acknowledging that we're not always the ones in control. The silence of Holy Saturday is a very different kind of silence. It's not the silence between words, but the silence of absence. In Jesus' tomb, there's no sound, no light, no conversation, no movement. Complete and total silence. Now, sometimes we experience the silence of Holy Saturday literally. A couple of years ago, one of our members died, and the next time I went to his widow's home, the oxygen machine that had been running in the background for years was gone. And inside that house, it wasn't just quiet, it was silent. And sometimes, of course, the silence is just metaphorical. It can cut right into the noisy world we all live in. The experience of Holy Saturday silence can hit us at the grocery store, on the train, at the park, any place where the future that we've imagined has a newly rent gap in it. Where you say something or think something or plan something expecting a response and you find only silence. So in today's reading from the book of Acts that Janice read, it's Dorcas who's died, but it's this group of widows who are experiencing her death. And they experience it by weeping, by grieving. When Peter enters into the house, they take him to the room upstairs. And Luke says that the widows stood beside Peter, showing him tunics and other clothing the Dorcas had made. They're not showing Peter these tunics to show how crafty or handy Dorcas was. They're showing him so that he knows that this community of widows depended on Dorcas. Dorcas was something of an activist in her community. She was the one who took care of people that nobody else wanted to. In the scriptures, widows are often generous and persistent, but they were also vulnerable. In the second century, the church developed some institutions to take care of widows in a more organized way. But at this point, they just have to depend on the generosity of whoever they can find. So having someone like Dorcas is a lifesaver, but after her death, the entire community of widows here is hanging in the balance. They're sliding into that Holy Saturday space. Their benefactor is gone. Their place in the community is up for grabs. Their sense that the world is predictable and understandable is sliding away before their eyes. When they think about what the future holds for them, they're met with silence. So what does Peter do? Peter goes into the room, and then Luke says, Peter put all the widows outside. Why does Peter do that? You would think that if Peter is going to perform some kind of miracle here, he would want all the widows to see it. You'd say, check this out, everybody in the upper room. But remember what is in the room when it's just Peter and Dorcas. Silence. Luke is telling us that the only way to witness to the one who is the resurrection and the life is to enter into that silence, to enter into the emptiness, the disorientation, and the silence that death can leave in its wake. Entering into that silence is one of the hardest things for us to do. We're much better at planning or explaining or cheering up or organizing, pointing the widows to another benefactor who could take care of them, telling them about a treatment that worked for our uncle when he was sick, telling them they should be grateful they even met Dorcas in the first place, or just telling them to have a celebration of life in her honor. But what does Peter do? He kneels down and prays, and he enters into the silence. 
See, we focus so much on the miracle of raising the dead that sometimes we ignore the power of just sitting with people in their silence, not rushing people to Easter before they've inhabited that quiet. Because it's only from within that silence that the word of life can come, Tabitha, get up. That Greek word for get up, as you may have guessed, is the same word that Luke uses to talk about Jesus' resurrection. The implication is that Jesus, Tabitha, and all of us have the same destiny. We all have the same future. In his resurrection, Christ triumphs over death and transforms our lives that are so often spent in death's shadow. But God transforms something else, too, which is that very silence. Because Jesus is risen, silences are never simply the endless voids that we experience them as. They're the pregnant pauses of the new creation. When we think that we've been abandoned, left alone, out of reach, we discover that Christ is in that silence with us. And it's from within that darkness, that seemingly impenetrable space, that the word comes saying, get up. St. Luke ends the story by saying that after Tabitha was raised, Peter called the saints and widows back into the room and showed her to be alive. Luke wants to make it clear that this power to raise the dead to new life doesn't come from Peter. It comes from God. Luke even notes that when people heard about Dorcas being raised from the dead, they believed in the Lord. They didn't believe in Peter. So our job is not to raise people from the dead or perform impressive miracles. Our calling and vocation and mission is to point people to the one who is the resurrection and the life. Only God can bring about resurrection, but only people who enter into that silence can show people to be alive. See, it's true that we're an Easter people, but you actually can't be an Easter people without being a Holy Saturday people too. We don't raise people from the dead, but we sit in the silence, we sit in the darkness, we sit in the uncertainty, and help people listen for the voice that says, get up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.